Gonna take a sip of water before doing the standard intro. Okay. Sounded refreshing. Yes. Um, it does not sound refreshing over the recording, though, if we leave them in. <laughs> it just sounds gross. Hello. Welcome to Foss and Crafts. A podcast about free software, free culture, and making things together. With my co-host, Morgan. And my co-host, Chris. And this week, we have our first kind of listener suggestion for an interview. Um, listener Schluffinger Schluff on Mastodon suggested that we do an interview with Vicky Steves, and we absolutely agreed. So here we are. Um, so welcome, Vicky. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Thanks again, Schluff, for requesting me. Well, it's it. we looked at your I, I think i've actually been subscribed to you on the fediverse for quite a while but um me as well. I, 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 but i but once i pulled up your profile again i'm like oh right of course this is a perfect person to have on the show so um i mean i guess there's a lot of reasons to to say why uh the um i mean so Wait, maybe you should let her introduce herself yeah i suppose that that makes sense so uh <laughs> vicky would you like to introduce yourself to our audience yeah sure hi everyone i'm vicky steves uh, I'm a big fan of both Foss and Crafts, so I do feel very happy and that I'm an appropriate guest for this podcast. Uh, I work at an academic library, and my job there is around encouraging open and reproducible research. And I typically like teach classes and walk people through the process to make their work more reproducible as a part of my job. Uh, I also have studied uh, different open source communities, specifically in academia, as a part of a project called Ice Age. Um, and I've been crafting since I could hold things in my hands. So very <laughs> happy to be here. Well, excellent. We're happy to have you here. I have also been crafting since I could hold things in my hands. <laughs> that was kind of a staple of my childhood. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So, um... To start off with, uh, would you like to talk a little bit about how you incorporate FOSS and open research as a research librarian? Yeah, so like I said, a lot of my job is teaching and walking people through different like processes for their research. Some of it is like, how do you publish data? But some of it is more of that nitty gritty. How, how do you use Git to uh, help you collaborate on a group project? Things like that. So I only will teach using open source tools because the majority of the folks that I see at my library are typically students um, of all levels, um, particularly graduate students, though. And I want them to be able to use whatever best practices that I'm teaching them after they leave my university, which is pretty well funded. So they have access to a lot of software through the library and other uh, par providers on campus that they will definitely lose access to very shortly after graduation. So I use open source as a way to teach sustainable skills to students. And I also encourage their use within our own library systems. Libraries have always been big makers and consumers of open source. And that certainly factors into, uh, you know, our internal processes, what products we choose to support uh, in our library space, things like that. So open is everywhere. Uh, it's a big part of my job. That's amazing. That's, that's something I also have encountered um, in my studies is a lot of universities have these big contracts with proprietary software companies 
to use kind of the big flashy things and then as a student either you can only have access to them in a computer lab or you get a student uh subscription to it while you're a student and then you graduate and you can't use any of those tools anymore yeah it's a huge problem and you know i want people to use their time and university resources wisely and you know, i'm a university resource i'm a service provider and it's definitely factored heavily into the way that i provide a service to my community the other big way it factors in not just sort of for the efficiency and uh you know benefits to individual researchers i also care a lot about it from a memory perspective so how do i make sure that their scholarship is preserved in the long term when it's you know a piece of software, for for example, um, or a data set that goes along with uh, a paper or a thesis or a claim. So I also approach openness from that perspective as well. And I think, you know, the more open, the more likely it will be preserved. That's just a fact for a lot of reasons, <laughs> copyright, technology-wise. Um, yeah. So, so this is actually interesting. Uh, I think we have a tie-in with a previous episode. So we had on... Stefano Zaccaroli from Software Heritage. Yeah, Zach. Yes, Zach is great. Um, and he was talking about the way that uh, Software Heritage is increasingly playing a role in reproducible research and software preservation. So um, I'm, I'm happy to see a continuing thread. I'm suspecting that, I mean, his work is primarily from the perspective of providing the service that keeps the, the software alive. Um, so I'm assuming that from your perspective as a research librarian, you're working on a different angle of the problem. Is that right? There's two sides to preservation, right? There's the actual preservation, which it tends to be, we think of it as back of the house type of a, a job. You know, it's it's forward migration of uh, different formats or emulation in some case. There's a great project for software actually called Emulation as a Service Infrastructure. And it's all about uh, providing access to emulated software collections from libraries is very cool. Um, and so there, then there's also that access piece that is just as important as the preservation part. So I definitely come at it from um, both angles there. Uh, I care not only about, you know, can you actually see the, the code, but how can future patrons, future users rerun it, interact with it, extend it in the same way that, you know, you might look at past data for longitude studies or for uh, a basis for your own work now, I'm interested in providing that basis to future scholars. So uh, yeah, it definitely is so, software creation is so important for just the continuation of research and so central to long-term reproducibility. I think I've seen a lot of researchers be content, like saying, I have a Docker file, my work is reproducible, when there's actually so much more work that goes into keeping that code uh, rerunnable and even like, knowing the workflow of your research of process uh, as so important to understanding even the outputs of what people are seeing. Um, you know, it all ties together. Yeah. So I, I think you've hit a strong point there with the, um, so I guess not, not everybody might be familiar with Docker, but it, would it, I'm going to try to give a summary for the unfamiliar potentially. Docker is a way of basically kind of rolling up a whole set of software that's related to the software that somebody wants to run, like all of the pieces, so that, um, and it kind of gets handed to you as kind of a black box, which like can be useful to be able to hand somebody 
a black box thing that appears to just work, right? But I, it sounds like from your perspective, that's insufficient because you're not getting somebody to the point of how did you build that black box, right? Yeah, well, so the there's a few issues with using containers for reproducibility, or I guess I should say long-term reproducibility, because I think in the short term, containers actually probably are fine. But if we want any longer sustained access to materials, they fall short um, in a number of ways. One is just that uh, the technology isn't super reliable. Like there was one period for a few years where Docker just didn't work on Windows Home Edition. And so, you know, a lot I would, students would come to me with a lot of problems related to Docker on Windows Home Edition. I would have to tell them, you kind of just have to, you know, install a VM and, and do your work that way. Uh, but there's also the idea of provenance, like you can give someone a Docker file and a repository full of scripts, but if there's not any like accompanying documentation about which scripts to run first, where the input data is, they can have lots of missing pieces. So there's actually quite a few components that go into making something reproducible in the long term. A lot of it has to do with documentation and sort of best practices of using good sustainable file formats for your data, like CSVs instead of Excel files. Um, And also sort of keeping track of the environment you're using in in a little bit more of a sustainable way than a Docker file. And there are a few different projects that address this. Like I work on one, it's an open source tool called RepoZip. There's also Occam, which is a project by uh, my friend Wilkie, who's also on the Fetty. I don't know if either of you have ever interacted with Wilkie. I, I, I definitely know Wilkie. Wilkie was involved in the social web working group where we standardized ActivityPub. Yeah, there you go. So Wilkie works on a software preservation project in service of reproducibility. So we work closely t- together in that issue. So it's been very cool to see sort of the open source community uh, galvanize around this, this problem of preservation access to materials in the long term. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think we've touched on this a couple of times, but you say on your website that you like to facilitate the use of open in all facets of research. And a lot of us are familiar with, well, especially the listeners of this podcast, probably with things like open source and open access and things like that. But how how do you apply that more broadly? Yeah, so there are a lot of different components of a given research project that are really necessary to keep it understandable. And I really think by opening up those different, um, you know, facets, our research will be more sustainable and more understandable and more easier uh, easier to extend. So uh, I think of particularly publishing like lab protocols. There are a few different websites where folks have been publishing their protocols and soliciting peer review and reuse of them and actually getting citations for their lab protocols. And they're doing that to have an open methodology. There are pre-registrations, which is basically you register your methodology in advance openly so that when it comes time to report on the outcome of your work, you avoid the problem of what's called hypothesizing after results are known, harking. Mm-hmm. So it's basically like you saw the data and you sort of shifted your claim a little bit about it. So we're seeing some movement in open methodologies, which I think is particularly important. So that that type of thing is something that I want to encourage along with opening up your source code. Academics tend to, or in academia, 
folks tend to open up everything but that underlying material. Like it tends to be, the focus tends to be on an article uh, and increasingly on data sets and code. Um, but I think there's still a lot of room for improvement in that area. Yeah, I think that um, that's something that I've definitely encountered before as well. The idea that if you make all of your research or your uh or your findings public then what are you going to publish later and what happens if someone else takes that and publishes it again so it's a bit of a hard hurdle to overcome sometimes because academics have kind of got this whole publish or perish thing drilled into us yeah and i i find it pretty funny to be honest when I hear stuff like that because it makes me think like someone is going to see your data or your whatever it is you're publishing your methodology maybe it's going to be so great in detail that they're going to have the exact same idea as you and then they're going to publish the exact same paper you are going to publish like there's so many uh, like what ifs to that scenario so many things that have to perfectly fall in line for that yeah. to actually come to fruition and they're going to really finish it before you it. exactly <laughs> Well, it presupposes so much. <laughs> so I've been, I haven't been around in free and open source software forever, but I've been around since like I started in like, I think maybe around 2001-ish. And that was right around the time that I think uh, the hype around open source was really starting to snowball. And at that time, I remember the, for like basically between 2001 and 2005, it was a constant question from people who were new to the idea of like, oh, you know, the, the, it's pretty much all the stuff that, that you two were just discussing, right? Like this, like, you know, well, somebody's going to snipe, swap in and, and swipe it away from you. They're going to blah, blah, blah. And a lot of those things are things that people don't even really bring up anymore. Like those aren't the concerns. Maybe concerns about, you know, how how we're going to fund it and stuff like that. But people are not afraid that you're going to you're going to be upended in your ability to participate by having released things in an open way. So I wonder if this might just be kind of growing pains. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would, I definitely think so. I think again, like with open access to manuscripts being such the focus of, of the open community in, in the academic world, um, open access to manuscripts is actually about like 40% of scholarship is open access now. Like there have been really noticeable gains in that area. And I am really eager to continue to push that for like data code methodology. The other side to these myths too, is that if you publish it openly and someone doesn't cite it, <laughs> you know, there are real concerns about academic misconduct. Um, and not showing your sources, or in some cases, um, you know, plagiarism concerns too. So yeah, I definitely think like there are some myths that are gonna be shed as we continue to build community and build technology around data and code sharing. And particularly in the reproducibility space, we've seen an outgrowth of, you know, for-profit companies who have taken open tools by the community package them and, and resold them in, you know, which so many folks do. Um, and this is also something that I think is going to be a big issue in particularly this, this open movement for code and data, because a lot of these vendors for, you know, these reproducibility software will often say you have to work within our platform. 
to be able to make sure your work is reproducible. And that's already a pretty high barrier. And that's already, uh, I think, pretty unstable. So yeah, there's a lot of churn around around this community lately. But there are also some really strong leaders and some really strong community and open source tools that I think folks have really been steadily adopting. Like, it's cool to see Project Jupiter grow so much. You work with the academic community, but I understand that you've also done academic work uh, studying the open source community and maybe how these two communities intersect. Is that correct? Yeah. So I worked on a Sloan-funded project called Investigating and Archiving the Scholarly Git Experience, which is super long. I don't know why Josh let me get away with that, my program officer, but we shortened it to Ice Age. Um, shout out to Genevieve and Sarah, who were my two uh, compatriots on that study. Uh, that whole project was basically to understand two things, one of which is how best can, or how can the uh, what we call glam community, galleries, libraries, archives, and museums, best preserve research software in a, in a way that's contextually meaningful, like capturing all that documentation and uh, dependency information that would be so key to giving access to the software in the future. And then there's also this sort of behavioral study side where we looked at how academics are using Git for various what we called, um, you know, scholarly activities. So whether that's for methods tracking, so people using a GitHub repository as like a lab notebook, or whether it's for publication, people sharing whole, like, I know uh, the DH community shares a lot of their projects on GitHub. It's pretty common to use it as a publishing platform as well. So we studied uh, the ways that um, these communities have formed, uh, where the pain points are in using these tools. So wearable are having trouble adopting Git and version control uh, into their workflow. And um, yeah, just did, getting did, a feel for how it's used to. Did you dog food your approach here? As in, uh, is your <laughs> data for this study reproducible and something our listeners could check out? Absolutely. So we just published our data in the qualitative data repository. So there are focus groups, a survey, and interviews. All of our survey analysis code is in a GitLab repository, which people are more, it's under an MIT license. Our data is uh, under a Creative Commons license. So I would definitely invite anybody to go digging through our data and do something cool and interesting with it. I have so many research ideas I just want to give away about this particular data set. So. <laughs> Cool. We can put the links to that in our show notes. Um, yeah. So, so Morgan, I, I, it strikes me that some of the stuff that uh, Vicky's saying here sounds familiar to some of the issues that you've encountered, both from other academics, but also with kind of becoming a digital humanities person. Is that is that right? Yeah. So I um, have mentioned before that I've been involved in a digital humanities project, and it started several years before I joined the project. And there had already been, I think, two other graduate students working on it. And the primary researcher who, uh, the professor who was the primary researcher on it, and a couple of, actually not a couple, and an entire undergraduate class uh, that contributed to the project as part of their coursework. So, uh, when I came into it, there were already files being shared for it in a number of different platforms. And so 
for that project, we had files on uh, Dropbox, on Box, on Google Docs, on um, GitHub, and I think there were like multiple Dropbox things. But, um, but wait, the primary one was over email, right? Was over email, yes. Uh, which obviously is a horrible way to do version control because it's really hard to find things. Um, <laughs> Yeah. And, and I introduced GitHub to the project, and then after I stopped being the primary person working on the project, the people who uh, took up work after me did not continue using GitHub, um, which is partially because I was doing web development and actually writing code, and they were doing more uh, more development of content, but still that just meant that there were more uh more yeah. kind of decentralized but not in a good way places that this information was stored yeah that's actually a huge part of my job is going into like different lab groups and research groups and sort of helping them organize everything in a way that's not only would be understandable to like new students coming on and off the project knowledge management is actually a big part of reproducible research even within one's own team um and also setting themselves up for like future success and staying in the good habits because it really is about building good habits uh and you know not for nothing get as hard <laughs> like that was a pretty common theme throughout all of my ice age research is that people find it just you know incredibly difficult to get onboarded on and our research revealed a few different reasons for why that is one of the main ones is that they just lacked a mental model for version control in general, which I thought was, you know, pretty interesting. Yeah. You know, I, it's difficult to think, remember the staging area when you just are used to control S. I know when I use Git, I have a cheat sheet on my computer that I reference to tell me the steps that I do in order to get things. Because if you only use Git, you know, once every couple of months, or maybe even sometimes once every six months, then it doesn't become habitual the way that it is for a lot of programmers. Um, and we actually, we talked about this a little bit in a previous episode, but we kind of streamlined that process for my dissertation by using Git Annex. And we chose that for a couple of reasons. One of the main ones is because my dissertation is in the field of art history and archaeology, which means that my dissertation has 118, I think, images, and you just can't store large files in Git very easily. Yeah, it's a huge problem. And also for reproducibility purposes, you know, a lot of the folks in Ice Age expressed that it was also hard to even connect external data sources uh, to GitHub repositories in a way that like makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, and also that Git LFS is just really hard to use. <laughs> yeah. So Git Annex makes it a little bit easier because, uh, because we have it set up so that it just automatically uh, saves changes. So yeah. Um, that I don't have to actively think about it. I can just write my dissertation and there's version control happening without me actively thinking about it. And um, I know we talked with Joey Hess, the main uh, developer and maintainer for Git Annex about a year ago. And 
said that I was the only person he, he knew of that was using uh, Git Annex for a dissertation, but it I feel like it could be more could be useful more broadly applied in academia. Absolutely. I also think it's interesting too, in our survey data, most of the people who learned Git learned it from books and the manual, which um, would preclude them even discovering, I think, Git Annex or other like Git related tools that could be helpful to them. So I also think there's some teaching and learning stuff to be done in that space. Yeah, and I think that really the only reason that I came to know about it is because I am an academic who lives with a free software developer yeah, <laughs> and me was able too. to say, oh, there's <laughs> there's an easy thing that you can use. But if other academics don't know how or where to find these things, then then they just don't get used. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I feel like we we've talked a lot about um, free software as in terms of uh, its connection to open research and stuff like that. But every when I go to your webpage, there's just so many things on here. Uh, some of it I think about your interests of in academic research and your interests around crafts and so on. Uh, like, what um, I, I would I would like to explore some of those other areas. So so would you like to uh, uh, indulge us with some of your areas of either if you had all the free time in the world to do some sort of uh, academic writing, or if you you know, what kind of crafting you do, uh, just please in, indulge our, ourselves and our listeners with, uh, <laughs> with with some of those other areas. Yeah, absolutely. So I've been thinking about this a lot, like, a lot lately, which is things that I really want to study or write up, but I don't have the time to do right now. And I think the top of the list would be actually in doing some ethnographies, of game of game developers who have developed like whole games by themselves so that's like concerned ape for stardew valley um the guy who developed roller coaster tycoon whose first name is john and last name is escaping me um and uh so i'm really just interested in the folks who take on these like big creative endeavors and also then the community that sprouts around them because ethnographies are not just interested in like you know me interviewing concerned ape and hearing the perspective it's also what's the community impact how has the community arisen around things like stardew valley which um you know has a lot of really cute crossovers into lots of different areas that i care about like open source software but also like crafting so uh some of my general interests uh in crafting i've been crafting forever as i said and I always come back to uh, embroidery. It was the first craft I learned and one of my favorite to this day. But I also am a huge knitter. Um, so I like to knit different data visualizations. Like I knit a weather blanket of the year 2017. Um, and then also just fun stuff like I knit a tie for one of my friends once. And um, I like... I drift towards the things that are programming-esque. There's actually a great article called Why Knitting Was the First Programming Language or something like that. Um, so I seem to stay in the same area, even though it takes lots of different forms. I feel like um, data, like knitting data visualizations is the perfect Fossing Crafts topic, right? Because it incorporates your uh, your craft hobby practices with kind of more broadly what you do on a day-to-day -day basis yeah absolutely 
Um, and it's also just like a fun outlet. <laughs> like I love, I'm not the best at like necessarily generating unique creations by myself, but I love to find like interesting patterns um, for cross stitch or for knitting and taking them on. Like uh, for Stardew Valley, I bought a cross stitch kit that had like all the Jamino uh huts and all the different colored jaminos because mm. um, they have specific shading and stuff and i'm a huge nerd for stardew valley <laughs> so i've been just cr- i've been cross-stitching like endless jaminos <laughs> and jamino huts um and it's just so cute but it is just like the the ones and zeros no like it's all just pickles i'm just i'm just stitching pixels together which uh cross-stitch or knitting or embroidery like Doing pixel art is really easy in those things because you're wow. basically um, just putting together blocks of things. Um, we were playing another proprietary game uh, recently that allows you to do some craft things in it. And I was making a pattern and Chris comes up and is like, you know that you're doing pixel art right now. And I'm like, excuse <laughs> me, I'm just putting an actual knitting pattern into this to make a pattern yeah it it is like funnily the same i think about that a lot i also think of like going back to your question about the you know the research i would do if i had all the time in the world i really think there is a i am really interested in exploring like the history of gender in a given industry and particularly like the loom and crafting industry and as well as computer as in computer science because there are so many similarities between like female dominated fields that are then sort of like swapped in terms of the majority representation like computer science i don't know if you're aware but my dissertation is on women and textile production in the roman empire so like that that's exactly what i study is and that is exactly what i would do if i didn't already have a full-time job in doing a second master's it's so interesting to me uh, yeah sorry you know you, why, Morgan, why don't you follow up on that i've i've got something too but uh, that that's so relevant to your stuff so go ahead yeah and one of the main things that i discuss in my dissertation i'm looking at the roman empire in particular and there's all of these sources that talk about the kind of like broader global trade networks of the roman empire and it's more more like not industrial because that doesn't happen at this point yet but like more industrialized than before um and therefore more male-centric and my dissertation is looking at how um women's roles continue within this kind of more masculine dominated field ah please publish that openly and send me the link Oh, it it will be. (laughs) It's I'm so close to done. That's good. I'm I'm so excited. That sounds awesome. Thank you. If there's more, actually, I know there's more things to be said in the textile area because I I have a feeling. Well, we've got we do this regularly, but that's at least two other episodes that we've already got planned because we we're going to do one on my dissertation eventually, like an entire episode on it, and we're going to do one on uh on how weaving influenced early programming uh, yeah yeah programming so so. so, um yes and we're doing the thing again where we're previewing (laughs) the episodes that don't exist yet (laughs) a bad podcast form um so (laughs) so so but i i do have something that um 
you said that that grabbed me in a couple of ways. So, um, you know, you you mentioned your interest in a you know well-known game that I also enjoy, Stardew Valley, and I'm sure it will not be lost on some listeners. Like, oh, wait a minute, this is proprietary, right? And actually, you know, I do wish Stardew Valley was not proprietary. The closest thing we have, I think, is. Um, cataclysm dark days ahead and you just turn off all the zombies and then just start on a farm but we don't really have anything else like it in the free software world but i think there's also something interesting there as in terms of things maybe the free software community can learn from what something specific that you mentioned which is the modding culture around stardew valley so i i wonder if you'd be interested in fleshing out um maybe especially for the listeners who are not familiar with modding culture around games uh and you know there is modding culture around some free software games actually cataclysm dda is a great example but i think uh modding is most famously well known within a lot of larger proprietary games and the cultural overlaps between that and foss can be kind of interesting and maybe there are even some pieces to pick up and try to observe ourselves so would you like to give an introduction to what that means and kind of what's available and what the community is doing in terms of the modding that you're seeing? Yeah, specifically in Stardew Valley? Yes, yes. Yeah, so um, modding is actually pretty front and center in Stardew Valley. Like it's, it has a page on the official, or on the fan wiki rather. Um, there's a whole player guide and you can mod things on Android, Linux, Mac, or Windows, which I think is really neat. Uh, they describe the actual like technical processes in a really, I think, wonderful, clear, and I don't want to say like explain it to me like I'm five, but really plain language. Like there's not a lot of jargon around the mechanics of modding, especially in a lot of their like documentation where they're trying to onboard new players and get people to use mods. So I think there's a lot about the actual technical writing around the modding community in Stardew Valley that I think would be really awesome to see uh, bridged. Um, there are quite a few folks I know who study open source documentation and who writes it. And uh, like Stuart Geiger, for example, at uh, UC Berkeley, uh, wrote a great paper about, you know, the the challenges, I'll just say, around documenting open source. So I actually think that's one area that is almost a direct connection or a direct um, inspiration. Like they, they, for Stardew Valley is, you know, definitely a certain age group, right? And so they definitely have adapted a lot of, you know, what is extremely technical work um, boiled down into really sort of what people need to know to get going. And as a result, mods are really heavily used. They have multiple popular modding uh, websites for Stardew Valley that are linked from that wiki. People have gists on GitHub that explain their favorite mods and why. And especially, I especially like the ones that uh, point to mods that improve the game while maintaining like the balance and the lore because I am a huge video game lore nerd specifically. Like I love the world building part of it. So I often look for that. Well, you said uh, that you didn't want to say, don't explain it to me like a five-year-old, but on the other hand, that's one of the things about, uh, about doing things like odds or, uh, or, 
you know, HTML editing in video games or something like that, is that you do have five-year-olds doing it, right? Maybe not five, but you have kids learning how to do kind of like basic fundamental things, uh, fundamentals of programming or development or something like that, because it's a video game and they want their yeah. Stardew Valley to be customizable, right? Absolutely. And it's everything from like, there's a mod to just make pineapples appear everywhere, and there's not even pineapples in just like stock Stardew Valley. But yeah. there are also there's also a whole mod that just spans the Stardew Valley universe. So it's called Stardew Valley Extended. It adds like over 20 locations. Like it's a really almost like huge DLC to the game. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's lots of different interesting levels of participation and just like play and funness that happens that I think is also just really I love observing that. Like the the thing that it gets me about the Stardew Valley community is just the joy. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I think for those of our listeners who might have never participated in a modding type community before, uh, you ex- mentioned a couple of things like, you know, the pineapples and stuff like that. But what are what are some other things like why might somebody feel motivated to make a mod? What do you think the motivation is for that? And Morgan mentioned, you know, it's popular with kids. Uh, Minecraft is also actually increasingly being used to teach kids at um, to learn programming and stuff like that. Like, what do you, what what has gotten out of either using a mod, and can you give some other examples, or and what do you think has gotten out of making a mod? So I think what's what you get out of using a mod is actually the importance of community sharing. So you're downloading something that someone else has made. Most of the mods, I mean. Most, if not all, the mods in Stardew Valley are, are open source. So you're actually like it's in, it's almost introducing people to open source in some ways, and I think that's really compelling. You're like this game, you know, it is proprietary, and I bet I I hope in my heart of hearts, concerned ape will make it open at a certain point in its life cycle. Um, but often, the, what you gain from like you know, someone who's a bit younger using a mod is an introduction to free software. And also the idea of like freedom to modify a software that you have, that you have bought. Like that's a pretty key tenant of like, you know, free software is, you know, I remember learning about free software in my first degree, which was computer science. And uh, we watched like a video on the history of open source. And someone had said on the, in an interview for that tape, um, why would you buy a house and not be able to paint the walls and likened <laughs> that to buying software and not being able to do anything. And modding is almost exactly that. It is buying a piece of software and then painting the walls. You're mm-hmm. not doing it on a fundamental level, but you're doing it on a level that still impacts your experience. And I think that's really cool. Uh, what you gain from contributing, I think, is what people gain from open source and a uh, strong community in general, right? Like you're making something other people enjoy. You're making something you enjoy. You're making something that, uh, you know, will also be taken up by different community members. Like the Stardew Valley community is really good about transfer of mods. So if someone is done maintaining something, you will typically find somebody else who will pick it up. And Mm -hmm. that, I think, is really cool and points to how good that community is. And I think that that's something that a lot of uh, a lot of kind of like hobby communities have and free software also has where you have communities just picking up a project after they 
are discontinued by their main thing, but you don't have that necessarily in, say, academia or um, more kind of professional software development environments. Absolutely. There is a lot of knowledge transfer problems and memory problems in academia, especially around software. Um, folks either really take two approaches, I found, which is never upgrading their system. Like I have a friend who did a PhD in climate science and she had to use Fortran because that's what her advisor used and that's what all their previous analysis work was based on. So she had to sort of pick up and use the legacy system or they burn it and redo it pretty much every time they have to do a task. So it's definitely tough. <laughs> in the digital humanities project that I was already talking about it, um, my advisor handed me a printout of code that she wrote in DBase when yeah. she was uh, when she was doing her dissertation because she thought it might be helpful for me. And I'm like, I'm gonna stick with Python, but thank you. <laughs> yeah, it's like that PhD this... comic. Yeah, and then uh, and then also, uh, so I built a website using Python, um, and it's a static website, and then. Someone in the university was like, oh, no, you should be using Drupal. So we, so the professor decided to switch it to Drupal. And then someone's like, oh, no, Drupal is too complicated. And the support staff that we promised you are no longer here. So then we switched it to WordPress and that because she wanted to have a dynamic site. And then it was switched to uh, the final one was to Airtable. So like... Wow. In in one project, we have both of those things, right? Yeah. The kind of like legacy code um, that's hard to incorporate, but it's there, and you don't want to just ignore it. But also the trying to just uh, keep up with whatever is the new cool thing. Yeah, sustainability is just a big problem, and especially for like digital preservation work. It is particularly hard when you think of things like file format obsolescence and in the case of software, um, you know, like OS degradation, like on a very low level system, um, systems that just can't be run on modern computers. It gets complicated very fast. Yep. So there are a couple of things I wanted to kind of tie back in with the modding stuff, because I, I think there's a lot to celebrate and learn from from modding things, but I think it's also worth recognizing the maybe the boundary of enthusiasm that like I have a lot of enthusiasm when I see the kind of community energy around mods, but then I also sometimes get slapped in the face where I remember, oh, right, and this is this is the real danger zone. So like there are a couple of projects that I thought have been really cool that have gotten um whenever you're doing something along the lines of modding or a fan work of these kinds you're kind of right now concerned ape is being fairly nice about its community being able to mod right but every now and then you have this time where it seems like okay um, we're going through this period where we're we're not getting in trouble and at, we're being generally, you know, maybe even kind of a low-key level of support, but then it just kind of get the rug gets pulled out from you, right? So a good example of this, I think, maybe is um, uh, there's there's two things I think about. One is Project M, which is basically the Smash Brothers community decided to continue the an older version of the game by patching it. Um, as kind of a open source project, basically, um, and called Project M. 
And they continued the development long after the proprietary game was originally made. And that's cool that like it's continued to be developed in that way. And there's another game called, uh, um, I think, AM2R, another Metroid 2 remake, which is in general considered one of the best quote-unquote Metroid games that's ever been made. And But the problem is, is that both of these projects um, appeared to be, you know, like, you know, they had an enthusiastic community that was continuing for a long time, and both of them ended and mentioned that it was legal threats and takedown notices that basically stopped the project. So that's the sad part yes. of modding with it. Yeah, that's the nail on the head, which is like the hardest part of preservation or memory work, the hardest part. Uh, which is like also, I think a lot of these folks picked up those games in service of keeping them around longer, which is great. Yes. But the biggest threat to software preservation is copyright. Actually, archiving, the act of archiving software is not protected under fair use in the United States. And so it stymies a lot of actual just straight up preservation work from even an institutional standpoint. From an individual standpoint, it gets a lot dicier because, you know, you're an individual and it's Nintendo or whoever coming after you and that's extremely scary. But the way copyright right now works in the United States, it's pretty much, um, you know, guaranteed that a lot of software will just cease to exist, frankly. And, and it's because of strict copyright. And anyone trying to preserve history is doing so at legal risk. Absolutely. Uh, yes. Especially around software. Yeah. And there's like a few court cases right now that we've been keeping our eye on. There's a great, I'll give a shout out to the Software Preservation Network, which is a membership organization within library and information science dedicated to software preservation, as the name suggests. And they have a whole uh, legal side of their work where they, for instance, will write like amicus briefs for Supreme Court. Uh, cases, including Google versus Oracle, things like that, which would impact archiving in a big way. Um, so I would definitely give them a shout out and say, like, it's definitely a huge area of impact, um, the, the work around loosening copyright specifically for software. Mm -hmm. But it affects everything, too. Like, it affects data. It affects manuscripts. The fact that people can't share their work openly is usually because they've signed away their copyright to a publisher. Um, there are lots of embedded issues within that, but it's the same for like the modding communities getting the rug pulled out from under them. It is a straight up a copyright issue. I, I think I had one follow up to that, which was about the academic publishing um, that either you've already sold the copyright to an academic publisher or if you release it in an open format before you publish it, then you won't be able to publish it with an academic publisher because they won't be able to control the copyright. So that's one of the reasons that people are afraid to publish. Well, you, so you can, you just, you can still publish with them, but you just can't transfer the copyright because you've yeah. already established a license. But I've definitely heard people um, voice the fear that if you, if you release yeah. it open in, in an open context, then you won't be able to release it at, or you won't be able to get it published by a publisher because academic publisher, because they won't want it if they can't have copyright well i think you know big academic publishers benefit from open licenses as well simply because they have redistribution rights already baked in they can True. still like in a lot of cases resell things uh, depending on the particular license used for a piece 
There's also that often the copy of the manuscript that you're depositing into like a preprint repository or your institutional repository or a disciplinary one is often not the same version that's going for publication. It's usually the pre-peer review version. So there are often substantive enough changes that um, folks are generally okay. There's actually a great website called Sherpa Romeo that you can type in the name of a publisher and it will tell you, yes, you can publish this open immediately, no matter where, or the publisher says you have to wait a year, which a lot of publishers say you have to wait a year before you can uh, make a copy openly available. So Sherpa Romeo, it tells you all the journal policies. It's really useful for that. But there are definitely ways to publish openly first and then, um, you know, still publish with a publisher. But I definitely have heard that fear before as well. Yeah. So I actually think, you know, we talked a lot about how when you kind of start with, uh, let's say, a either cultural or software based, not kind of non-free base, right? You know, you've either got some cultural work that you're working off of or some software work. And in the case of games, it's both, right? You know, the you've got both culture and software there at the same time. So that makes it a particularly interesting case um, that you know, a derivative works effectively are subject to kind of the whims of the original source material to some degree, if you don't figure out how to file off all of the original, uh, you know, uh, ser yeah, serial numbers, basically, and uh, kind of remove it from that restriction. So if you, in those scenarios, we sometimes do, I mean, we often do see takedowns and stuff like that, and that can be really sad. But I think there's actually room even within those moments that seem really negative, that we can maybe actually even capture something positive, which is the efforts of explaining and writing up when something like that is so upsetting and disappointing can be a lesson, right? About the way that our copyright systems work, I think. You know, one of my biggest introductions as to why free and open source software was really important was I played a massively multiplayer game back in the uh, late 90s, early 2000s that allowed anyone to be able to extend it. And it did get a takedown notice. And a couple of my friends who were running an older version of software, once they decided they don't want didn't want community servers anymore, did start getting takedown notices. And that made me feel like, oh, you know, this is really important. So is it is maybe maybe I'm going off in a weird direction, but I actually feel like that can be positive. Like if you get people to become aware through those experiences, what, I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, you know, I I think we can either contribute or disrupt the corporate capture of scholarship and the corporate capture of the arts, which I include video game as an art, um, of course. So mm -hmm. I think yeah, we can. I often will tell people like in talks when I'm sort of going off on copyright, I'll say like it, it starts in the mirror and there's also many support people around you that can help you. Like if not your friendly librarian at whatever institution you're at, your public librarian, there's, there is support for you in not only getting information about copyright and how it affects your use of material, but also how it, how it can, uh, how you can, effectively license and copyright your own work so i would say there's lots of like good support systems that people can definitely take advantage of i've all i've also seen communities sort of come up with their own interesting licensing structures 
Um, like there's a whole thing I just discovered about open source licenses for cannabis strains. That is so fascinating to me. So <laughs> I, I love the gal. I love anything that galvanizes community understanding. And I would just say, as your friendly librarian on the podcast, you, all the listeners should go find your own friendly librarian <laughs> and they will likely be able to help you. Awesome. So there's my call to action. And it starts in the mirror. Perfect. So practice what you preach. Yeah. I would also like to add on to what Chris said um, with that um, massively multiple multiplayer online game sending takedown notices. Years and years and years after that, Chris, what did it lead you to do? Oh, right. That's actually led to the Sprightly Project. My very oh, wow. work. I mean, it's actually been the long. Well, there's the long. There, there's stepping stones along the way because there was Liberated Pixel Cup. Yeah, it's actually it's been the. You could see that moment as being, you know, it's it's false to construct a narrative where you say, and then this one moment led to all those things. Because, of course, there were a lot of things that happened. But it was definitely an experience that pushed so many other things forward, both feeling that potential of, oh, my gosh, me and my friends are all ex extending this thing. <gasps> it's all been taken away from us, right? And, you know, you can see that influencing all the work that I did from there stuff on network freedom the liberated pixel cup uh the artwork style is directly influenced by that game which was called grail online uh and which itself was originally called zelda online a um which got a takedown from nintendo so they rebranded wow. right and then they later on sent their own takedown notices against other people right and so that that moved me to you know both being interested in network freedom and also um, the very things that I'm doing with Sprightly and why you see virtual worlds appear as one of the goals in Sprightly is, you know, I believe, you know, just what, what you were saying, Vicky, about the the exciting capacity to see, you know, young people get engaged in programming, but also, gosh, I want to have, you know, digital or spaces of digital artistic collaboration where it's safe legally for everyone to contribute. So yeah, I think you're right, Morgan. That's a a you. I guess I'm I'm personally Chris, an example. And of that. did you get your career is the shining beacon? <laughs> no, oh, that's taken too far. I was gonna say too. I take inspiration from a lot of that. Like I did. did we actually meet in the pepper and carrot community? Because I love pepper and carrot so much. But and I think it's just such a shining example of the joy and community around open art and so mm -hmm. sprightly's yeah. sprightly's uh, if you go to sprightlyproject.org all the character art on there is done by david rovois the peppered carrot yeah uh, when artist. i saw it that's what i immediately thought of and i was like he must have gotten to view for this um, yeah i love it and, and it is just like i take such inspiration from and also the thing i love too is just the learning opportunity like, it's so cool to see, like, David does these uh, blog posts that are great about his in-depth process of using, like, Krita and open source software. It's yes. just, I take such mm -hmm. inspiration from that, and I, like, want to apply that to academia and to my work as well. So I would yeah. say, too, like, another good call to action is just take inspiration and go go for it. Yes. Oh, okay. Well, that feels perfect. That's the high <laughs> note we want to end on. <laughs> they, we're all feeling charged we up found and inspired. It. Yes. <laughs> Vicky, it's been great having you on the show. 
Um, I'm sure we could probably do another 10 of these with the, like, we only kind of touched the surface level of. We didn't so even many... talk about tabletop games. Oh, we didn't even talk uh, about tabletop Which I love games. so much. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. As do so we. <laughs> there's so much that we can talk about here. Um, but I think we've hit a good wrap up point for the episode. So I suggest we do that now. Uh, Vicky, thank you for coming on the show. If there are people who are excited, by your work and your thoughts, uh, where can they find and reach you? Yeah, so I'm everywhere at Vicky Steves on uh, the Fetty at Vicky Steves at Auckland.social um, and every other social media. It's just Vicky Steves, all one word. So definitely get in touch with me if um, you're interested in anything we talked about. Excellent. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. We, yeah, thank you both. We had a lot of fun with this episode. Yeah, same. Foss and Crafts is released under the Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 International License. It's hosted by Morgan Lemmerweber and Christopher Lemmerweber. The intro music is composed by Christopher Lemmerweber, meaning myself, and Milky Tracker, and is released under the same license as the show. The outro music is Enchanted Tiki 86, composed by Alex Smith of The Cynic Project, and is waved into the public domain under CC0 1.0. See cynicmusic.com for more information. You can get in contact with us on the Fediverse, Foss and Crafts at octodon.social, on Twitter as at Foss and Crafts, or you can email us, podcast at fossandcrafts.org. We also have a chat room. Join our community, hash Foss and Crafts, on irc.freenode.net. If you'd like to support the show, you can donate at patreon.com forward slash C-W-E-B-B-E-R. That's it for this week. Until next time, stay free. And stay crafty. All right. Well, um, I, I think actually maybe that was just... Yeah, I think that was just the end. I don't think we need to do the awkward bye. All right. Bye, everybody. (laughs) Uh. Okay, now we can stop recording. Yes. Okay.